Hello, everyone. It's time for myself, Mike, and my buddy Max to talk about startups, sparks, and serendipity again. Despite that not being the actual name of our podcast anymore, I think it's a very good explanation of what we're doing. Today, it's only the two of us. We will have a couple of interviews with some very interesting people in the next couple of weeks, some heavy hitters, as I would say. But for now, it will be us talking about a couple of nice topics. We will talk about the macro situation and what it means for startups, for employees, and also maybe for just generally us as a society. But then we also have a couple of other nice topics. But without further ado, Max, how are you doing? Very good. Very good. Berlin is shining. Uh, as maybe you know, but maybe others don't know, I moved to Berlin four weeks ago, actually, by today. Um, and it, it's great. Uh, the weather actually approaches me nicely. And uh, I live together with a couple of guys, right, as you know, and one of them is a friend of yours. So uh, lots of startup talks as usual. And, and it's fun. Can't complain. Yeah, big you? fan of that specific house. And next time in Berlin, already excited to join for dinner. And I'll just invite myself. You are invited. <laughs> yeah, let's let's start about let's start talking about the topic that everyone's talking about in the startup scene right now. The recession is coming. Doom is beyond beyond the like horizon or at the horizon. Like we'll we'll all like all startups will die. At least that's the that's the feeling that you get. But yeah, jokes aside, I think obviously like probably all of you have heard about it. They. There is a cascading effect. Public markets have crashed. Crypto has crashed. But because public markets have crashed, many of the late stage companies, uh, their valuations are now in question. Many of the late stage investors have to mark down their investments because they think they can't get as much anymore if the companies go public. That then leads to, like if Series E investor, if they mark their portfolios down and are more careful about investing, that means that the Series C or D investor who invested in companies before now has a more difficult way of placing their portfolio companies in the next round, which then means that they have to mark down their portfolios. It's basically a cascading effect that goes down. My current assumption, and that's basically an assumption I've confirmed with many of my founder friends, but also investors of all stages, maybe seed, Series and then also some public investors or like public stock investors is that seed and pre-seed won't be affected as much because the time horizon is longer but everything later will have a more difficult time to raise and we can think about that in a lot of different ways and there are other people who have published some great content so one of the things i want to do is just recommend that content to you but for now max have you noticed that things are changing yeah, definitely. I mean, I um, since moving to Berlin, I talked to a few friends, especially also investors or people currently raising funds um, to invest again pretty soon, hopefully. And um, what each of them says, and even about pre-seed and seed, right? I which I'm kind of I talked to a bit more is that it that they're going to focus much more on traction than maybe they have done in the last kind of few years. Um, so, for example, I talked to a VC investing into different health tech ventures and one of the topics was that 1 million ARR kind of going into seed might not be enough anymore and it's going to be three four into seed uh, or into series a uh, series a sorry yeah series a um 
is is and, and and one million is not enough anymore and you need three four um and and basically that of course changes a bit of the dynamics because people that have had basically a million or maybe a one and a half million in ar right now are currently struggling to find these investors because they're all blocking their meetings and basically only let people in that make three million plus and of course that's pretty pretty, pretty heavy change compared to four or five months ago so that's something that i observed um, to be honest, which, of course, as you mentioned, it drills down even to younger startups that maybe would have gotten certain uh, money maybe half a year ago, but are not able to actually get it. And I also talking to different early stage founders that basically just started a company maybe within the last 12 months, they they kind of lose some traction, their customers are leaving them because they also need to care about their money and their expenses. And it drills, drills down into kind of them also having struggles actually raising seed rounds. So it seems to be all over. Um, however, I don't think you can compare it with, and I haven't really focused on the 2008, 2009 crisis, probably, you know, more about it, but I don't think it's comparable to the crisis we have had back then. Wonder what you think about it and what you've noticed. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be the same level right now, but it, like there's a lot of discussion around it, right? There are like economists talking about it. There are like lots of investors talking about it. And I mean, the world GDP has already lost like a, a lot of firepower in the last six months. And then also like the world market cap in quotation marks. If you think about like public stock value and how that crashed, I think the latest number I've seen is like 14% or something like that year to date. So that's a very significant amount. Like lots of money was destroyed in quotation marks, like paper money at least. But yeah, I how I think about it, if we focus on the startup, let let's focus on startup founders first. Yeah. If you yeah. are a later stage company, I think you are pretty screwed if you don't, if you can't make the right changes quickly, because the things that were enough, as you said, for an A, like, or even for like a B, C, D, E round that like there was enough like six months ago and you were hitting all your KPIs, you were actually like very close to what you actually needed, might not work anymore, right? Either because unit economics are now looked at differently or like you need more traction or different traction. And you basically thought you were achieving the goal and you've already like overachieved the goal and was you were very confident about raising around. I have a couple of friends like that, like that basically friends of mine, Series C company, they had a specific goal that was set by them from a couple of Series C investors. They told them, well, if you hit that goal, I'll lead you around. And these were like fairly legit offers because they, they are like multiple founders and they literally this investor let their last like Series C when they did it. But then now they said they've already overachieved it, but now the like fund like basically changed it. They said, well, now like the goal is different now because the macro environment shifted and they were about to start their raise next month. So now they have to think, okay, how do I increase my burn, which means cutting a lot of expenses. And I think that's the biggest point you mentioned it earlier. The issue is it like it attacks your company from two sides. One side is that you need more traction compared to what you needed before because valuations have shifted, multiples have gone down. So you need more to ensure that you get to a certain valuation. 
But at the same time, generating traction is more difficult because everyone is cutting their costs, right? So if everyone is spending less money on their SaaS budget, as an example, and you're a SaaS company, then it's more difficult to sell new products. It's more difficult to keep churn as low as it was before. But at the same time, you need more traction. So what I think everyone says, right, and it's a good transition to the content that we recommend is companies need to like trim their budgets, extend the runway and try to smoothen it out and see how the market develops and whether they can survive long enough. So there's this great, I think the best thing I've read so far is the Sequoia founder, all hands. Uh, it's this like 50 page PDF document that talks about some macroeconomic background, but then also specifically on what founders should do. Uh, we can link at least uh, like the reference to it in the show notes. That was the best thing I read. And there's a very good YouTube video from Craft Ventures that talks about startups in, in downturns. That's very good. And then we, we can also link that. And then we link the Andreessen article about companies in downturns as well. So there is some very good content about it that I think if you're a founder, even if you're just interested in the whole space, you should probably read. But yeah, let's let's go one step below. Let, let's I think the, the later stage companies or everyone who needs to raise rounds based on traction, like needs to extend runway and see whether they can maybe do a bridge round. I don't even know. Like just try to keep the company alive is what I'm getting from my friends who are in that position. And still it's very different, right? That's I think um kind of not losing complete hope is also quite important, right? Also for people that actually wanted to start businesses at this point in time and basically kind of take a step back now because they are afraid of how the market maybe changes and whether they're actually able, for example, in B2B to make revenue. I think, however, if you look, I talked to a VC today and we we had this conversa conversation about 2008, 2009 versus today. And I don't really have lots of kind of comparison because I was way too young back then. But what he said is that 2008, 2009, was a time when there wasn't actually any seed investor on the market. So all the angel investors basically dropped, but there was also not enough angel uh, seed investors, especially in Europe, especially in Germany. Uh, basically, you had Rocket Internet and a few smaller ones, um, or not smaller ones, but a few ones that maybe had uh, enough capital to deploy. But of course, it was limited to a specific audience. And nowadays, 11, no, actually 10 years later, uh, no, 13 years later, you have kind of a huge diversity of seed funds, pre-seed funds that are raising their funds right now to invest in the next upcoming entrepreneurs. And I think that's pretty, uh, like that, that also gives me some hope that we will again, as we could have also seen a few years back when kind of Airbnb was founded and a few other companies, that there will be great companies uh, coming out of this again, because money is there. You just need to kind of focus on, yeah, clearly focusing on finding product market fit with the leanest team that you can build. Um, and it's, you're not going to get money for, um, a crypto punk probably anymore. Um, so <laughs> to just put that in perspective and it feels like the, the, the importance on the founders and the team and the, the background of each of the team members is going to get more important based on what kind of people have told me at least. Yeah. Like that, that's what I wanted to transition into. I think pre-seed seed, it will be more difficult, but I think the, the time horizon is long enough that these investments will still continue because if your time horizon is 10 years, we'll be out of the recession by then. Right. So I think this won't be impacted as much. And that's also the messaging I'm getting from everyone who invests pre-seed seed. They, they will think about valuations. They might go down, right. They won't be as 
high as they were last year and the terms might shift towards VCs a bit more again when it comes to board compositions or when it comes to like overall rights and the structure of the agreements. But I think the investments will still happen. And then also one thing that I think is actually beneficial for founders who want to found now or who founders who are like still operating, many of the startup tourists will leave, right? So <laughs> I, I've already heard from some people that were like kind of thinking about building a business that they now don't want to do it. But, and I can understand that, right? Because the risk has changed. And now, basically, since the risk is higher, a certain group of people who would have found it if the risk was lower won't found. But the hardcore, like, entrepreneurs, the hardcore founders, they don't care about the, like, macroeconomic environment. They just want to build products and find PMF and then scale their companies. Like, I wouldn't care. And obviously, even... Even if you're one of those, right? Even if your risk affinity is high enough that you still want to do it, you have to accept the environment and you have to adapt to it. But it it, it shouldn't prevent you from actually doing it. But I think like many people now won't do it just because the risk equation has changed. And that's always the case, right? So in 2008, 2009, when everyone was fired from their finance jobs, many people would start doing MBAs again because MBAs were the perfect gap closer. So the apparently the MBA, like the, the high tier MBA institutions got like as many applications as they never gotten before just because there were so many like smart, like finance people who would want to do like MBAs and who didn't really find any good jobs and who didn't want to have a gap on their, their resume. So they applied for the MBAs. And then many people who want, would want to found... A startup now will probably not do an MBA, I assume, maybe they will, but they will probably just find interim jobs or they will work at like larger tech companies that are not as affected and then maybe found a company once the whole situation improves a bit again. But yeah, my my overall feeling is that it will be more difficult for founders for a little bit, which means less people will try it, which also means that VCs have even more... Like they need to pick the right teams because there's like fewer competition within the the founders, right? So founders that raise now or like that raise within the next year in the early stages mm -hmm. have, I think that's an assumption. Maybe that's totally wrong. I have no idea. Have less competition from other founders just because they're not as many teams who are trying to build something. It could be true. Yeah. Um, that's It's a good point to kind of observe, I think. Um and it's a good opportunity at the end of the day, right? But I can also understand if psychologically the risk might be too high for certain people and they take something on differently. Um, that's everybody's own decision. But I think there are also great, great programs that kind of support you if you're unsure about it and you kind of at least want to have some at least financial backbone to work with, right? Such as Entrepreneurs First, Antler and other programs that exist out there. So Y Combinator. So I think there are lots of them out there that can help you kind of go through this phase and maybe just don't have too much burn and focus on the most important people that you need in order to find product market fit, preferably even the founder team. Yeah. And that works. You don't need to grow uh, to 150 people within 12 months now. That is, that's not going to happen anymore. That's true. And like speaking about that, it's, crazy to me i mean not crazy but 
it's it's very interesting to see like how many people were laid off recently, right? Yeah. And that also makes sense. I mean, for the people that know about it, it's very obvious, but just for everyone else, like if you look at tech companies and look at their cost structure, payroll, so paying for employees is by far the biggest point. Like if you're building like, like a traditional tech companies, like 60 to like sometimes 90% of the overall costs, it really depends on like how much like server costs do you have? Do you have like a full office because like rent can be expensive depending on how big your team is and where you are, etc. Mm -hmm. So like the actual percentage change, but I, I don't know of any like tech company where payroll isn't the highest expense that they have. Maybe like some very, like maybe some early stage D2C business that burns, like puts a lot of money into like just performance marketing and has a fairly small team. But yeah, so it's usually it's usually payroll. Then depending on what you're doing, it might be like marketing, like sales related. But then rent is usually maybe hardware. But that's yeah, a, that's what I wanted to say. Like if it's like it, it might be hardware, but then it's not a traditional like tech company, right? Yeah. So if for other business models, there might be other things. But yeah, so basically what that means is that people that want to cut costs, they only let's say your cost basis is like. 75% payroll, right? And then 25% of the rest. And you need to cut your total cost by 20%. Like, so you need to get from like the, the base 100 to 80. If you only have like 25 percentage points that you can allocate to non-payroll, it becomes very, very, very difficult to not make a cut in the team and get to the runway you need if you need to cut your costs, right? It's just mathematically because you need some, you need some base level of like AWS or like your like marketing spend if you want to grow. And like usually for rent, it's not a monthly contract, so you have to continue paying it, et cetera, is it? So making deep cuts as Gorillas made, as Klarna made, as some big US companies made, there are hiring freezes at many of the big tech companies. So it it makes sense rationally. But it's also a good opportunity for everyone who is hiring talent right now. Yeah, it's actually pretty funny. I, I heard um, <laughs> that kind of BCG, Boston Consulting Group, as of course one of the like more famous strategy consulting firms, they actually use the opportunity right now and they've kind of laid up banners everywhere to kind of give people the chance and opportunity to... <laughs> Uh, let them work uh, basically on the 1st of June today uh, because people got laid off maybe three days ago. And it's it's crazy. Like uh, there are certain people in the market that kind of use this chance now to hire people. Which is sad. Don't, don't join BCG. Shout out, shout out, shout out <laughs> to all my friends at BCG. I love you. No, but, but for real, like uh, I, I think there will, there will definitely be people who transition from the startup industry to something more safe like 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 consulting like more traditional corporates where you have more job security and that's fine right again i'm like whenever i say these things it's not because i blame people who do it but just because i have a strong opinion on what i think people who at least like like startups and want to like be part of this world should do and joining like a consultancy is usually not the thing you should do. There is some very specific use cases for it, but I think there's better ways of spending your time than building slides, in my personal opinion. I agree. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, 
Yeah, and of course, people can also reach out to us in case they might, might kind of want some uh, kind of input or maybe additional um, content to look into or people to talk to that are still open to do business and still open to build great products. So uh, there's room for good founders, I think. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I still see, to maybe to close it off, and by the way, we link lots of stuff in the show notes. And one last comment on like the whole like more traditional, like consulting, large corporate tech job kind of topic. It actually, I, I think consulting is not the best example, but there there are some jobs that friends of mine who were even who were founders before or were like employees at like startups, they sometimes use it as their own sabbatical. So basically, <laughs> so basically they say, well, I just burned like a lot of, energy for three years building the startup why don't i just work at netflix for two years or why don't i just work at google for two years and enjoy having like all the perks that come with it like free food everything is taken care of i work with smart people and then i'll see what i do next so basically it's a it's almost like a recovery period depending on what you're doing and obviously they're also very demanding jobs at these companies and they work a lot and they learn a lot but uh, I'm just talking about like specifically founders that are trying to take a step back from the full ownership of the whole company and that want a transitional period. But yeah. Yeah. And you have, some, you have certain benefits, right? Just as a last comment, I, I know that, for example, pro founders that were very much product focused before, they also enjoyed working in product in larger kind of tech companies because of kind of one or two reasons. One of them is that usually large companies have quite some money to deploy for ideas that might be actually bigger than maybe what you have dreamed of before uh, because they can actually finance it take meta now going into the metaverse as a product manager for example you have certain opportunities to kind of think a bit bigger and uh, and basically use the money that's there to build great products um, and of course as you said you are surrounded by very very good people that also can become your co-founders later on because some of them are interested to build businesses. So yeah, there. but I'm not saying it's a good thing. I just say it's it's a viable option, especially as I know in product. I'm not sure how it's in other areas. But screw all of that and just build the companies. That's that's my that's my last comment on it. Yeah, but we'll, we'll link all the interesting topics in the show notes and we'll probably continue talking about it, at least in the, definitely in the episodes that the two of us are doing. And mm. We have to navigate our way through it as well, right? We are currently navigating through that at my company. And then I know that you are navigating through it as well. So we'll we'll share our own journey. We'll share what we learn from other people. And then we can just see where that leads us. Yes, let's do that. And yeah, I, th I think one kind of other topic that might be interesting, I listened to a conversation with kind of Andreessen and a few other folks talking about whatever topic they had in mind. But one of them, which kind of sparked my interest was um, the idea behind um, how, like how, let's say science calls it um, availability cascades. So just to kind of take the official definition and then Mike and I are just going to chat a bit about it. And I have a couple of additional thoughts. An availability cascade is a self-reinforcing cycle that explains the development of certain kinds of collective beliefs. A novel idea or insight, usually one that seems to explain a complex process in a simple and straightforward manner, gains rapid currency in the popular discourse by its very simplicity and by its apparent insightfulness. 
Okay, I, I could uh, probably become a book reader by now, but um, what it what it just means in simple words is that kind of different researchers in the past, but also quite recently looked into the developments that they have kind of observed in society where specific groups have emerged out of maybe a spontaneous uh, spontaneous kind of development. Take, for example, climate change, where climate change has become more important um, and has basically become one of the areas that's been talked about in all different places for very good reasons. And 20, 30 years ago, people had their kind of biases and thoughts about whether climate change is actually existing, right? And now we actually take that development where because society actually believes in that climate change is existing and that we need to make uh, changes about it, that certain groups actually become part of this group, believing in the need for change. And then they develop some sort of... Um, yeah, as they call it, self-reinforcing cycle, where actually in this case, in a good way, people actually develop ideas and think about how we can combat climate change in a good way. They're also negative or maybe not negative, but maybe things that are a bit more open for discussion. Take this whole debate in the US with kind of gun laws and whether guns should be allowed for individuals um, to use. And they have actually made experiments that if they, for example, put 40, 50 people in a room where they believe that guns are important and that guns should be owned by individuals, that these 40, 50 people that all believe in this um, actually become more extreme in their opinion. So it's not that they actually use critical thinking and maybe reflect on what they are thinking about, but they actually become self-reinforcing and actually even are kind of able to, to, to get more extreme thoughts about these topics, which is a very interesting behavior. And even if you think about companies, if you own startups, and you have certain groups and kind of different people join these groups and they believe in a certain topic, maybe that's relevant for your company or maybe a future. That's kind of maybe an issue where as a founder, you need to take a step back and, and say, okay, are we in some sort of availability cascade, maybe even in a small manner in my organization? And do I need to bring in some critical thinking to reflect on where this is going? And of course, we have kind of macro issues where people are talking about this, but you have micro issues maybe in your own organization where this can become a topic, um, especially maybe in times of where we are right now. Um, and I thought this is quite interesting. And I wanted to chat a bit about this on kind of how you maybe have seen this in maybe also other places where groups have kind of joined certain groups and or people have joined certain groups and, and have kind of developed a, a self reinforcing cycle, as they call it, around collective beliefs that collective beliefs that people believe in. Any thoughts? I think there's, there's, if I understand it correctly, this specifically, at least there's like two main parts to it. Like number one, because a topic is discussed more, other people pick it up and then it becomes, the momentum becomes even bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it builds on top of itself. And then you have like this, like really, really like ba basically you, you establish this common belief structure that everyone agrees on to some degree right it's it's just this like as you said self-reinforcing process and then the other part of it is the escalation of the actual content if i understand it correctly so and i, I think there, there's some very interesting psychological studies i i haven't heard that term used in them but i think it's very related and it was specifically about why do fringe groups or echo chambers always get more extreme 
And one of the hypotheses in there was, let's assume you have like 20 people and everyone um, believes in a certain, I, I, I don't use examples, just do not politicize it. But everyone believes in like one specific thing, right? All the 20 people or like 200 people believe in this specific thing. And then it's very difficult to signal to the other people in the group that you're actually like a real like participant of the group because everyone has the same belief. So what do you do? You take it one little step further to get credit from the others for it. And if you take it a step further, then you might get credit because the others are like, oh, why? he is even more committed to this cause than we are because he's more extreme about it. And then they want to get to the same level. So they adapt the same belief. And then they just like basically because of that, because of the social signaling behind it, get more and more extreme because it's it's difficult to score points with the less extreme beliefs because everyone's like, well, like everyone already already believes in that or or everyone already believes in a stronger version of it. Why, why are you saying this makes sense if we are already way further ahead? And so it has a lot to do, according to my understanding, when it comes to the escalating nature of it with the signaling behind it and that you... That, that individuals like want to signal that they're actually very committed to it. And then they, like everyone is trying to catch up. And that's very, that's very interesting, especially if you think about that there are more and more echo chambers caused by all the algorithms out there. We talked about that a lot and it has been in public discourse for a long time, but it's still true and it hasn't really changed, right? If you surround yourself with people of similar beliefs, or if you click on the specific videos or posts that reinforce your belief, you will get an increasing escalation, even in your own social media use, you will see only sources from one side, you will get way deeper into the rabbit hole, whether it's on one side of the issue or the other side of the issue, you, you'll just increasingly get more into it. There's actually a great podcast series about that part of it. I'll, I'll look up the name while we talk about it, but they are talking about YouTube and how YouTube can lead you down like a rabbit hole and reinforce beliefs and actually make you more extreme. And I think that's a that's a good fit fit here. But yeah, how do you how do you think that can be? I think sometimes you can use it for positive change, right? But how how do you think that? Okay, let me rephrase the question. Do you think this is even more apparent nowadays than it was 30 years ago? Or do you think it's yeah. still the same concept and it still has the same power and we just try to put it in the new context and say that it's more important now, but it actually isn't? No, I think it is actually. And I, because of one specific reason that I kind of talked about with a friend yesterday in person, and it comes back to kind of how, in my opinion, how we grow up. And also who you spend time with and in which form you spend time with other people, whether it's digital or in, uh, in, in real life. And um, I think why is that the case? I think and, and I can just kind of tell my own stories when I was in when I was in school and I basically believed in something and my five, six friends were around. It basically all came from different backgrounds, had different beliefs. And they didn't believe in what I was saying, or they didn't kind of resonate with what I was saying. They were actually telling me, Max, this is stupid. I don't believe in this. Why do you even think about this? What makes you believe in this topic? And this happens in real life conversations. If you kind of remember any conversations with your peers or friends or students or co-founders, if you meet in real life and you have kind of a, a, a group of people that all has different backgrounds and different belief systems, then they will, they will 
potentially challenge you. In a, in a remote world, the setting is a bit different because you actually, and they, like think about young people being like 14 and 18, they can digitally choose the environment that they like and choose the people that they kind of want to be surrounded with, whether these are kind of gamers believing in a certain kind of um, ecosystem, whether these are people that play chess and kind of uh, have a certain uh, kind of maybe mentality about playing chess, you kind of choose digitally the circles that you want to kind of spend time with. And it's also much easier to find the people that you want to spend time with remotely than in real life, because you have a 30 um, friend, uh, 30 people in your class at school, and you have to kind of find two, three people that you like, and maybe they are not 100% what you were looking for. Yeah. But you just have no op other option. And I think that makes, a, just to close it off, I think that makes a, quite a big difference in a digital world where people actually, young people grow up in a digital focused world versus only focusing on kind of a real life environment. And it can harm you potentially in a bad way that kind of these availability cascades can evolve out of these digital ecosystems. Yeah, two, two thoughts on that. Number one, that's one of the best things about the internet as well, right? Because you can just find people who love the same thing you love, who are into cooking, into anime, into sports cars, or whatever it is, right? You just find this group that share the same kind of passion that you do, and you can, at the same time, just learn so much more about it and get really deep in it. So it's great. And that's one part of it. And the other part is there's this, there's this saying, I don't know where it's, where it's from, but I just had to think of it. And someone said it in an interview that I saw, I don't know if it's original or not, but he was basically, well, like 50 years ago, like every village had an idiot that believed in like conspiracy theories and everything. But everyone would just would just say, well, that's the village idiot, right? But nowadays, all those village idiots have the internet and see, well, there's other people like me. I can't be that stupid. And then that reinforces their beliefs. Because back in the day, everyone was like, well, yeah, that's just that's just Steve. He's just he's just a bit crazy. And now there's like lots <laughs> of Steves who find themselves on the internet and who reinforce their often wrong beliefs, right? So I think that's a a funny way of framing the whole debate. And there there is movements against the whole echo chamber mm -hmm. system, but it's very difficult because the the economic incentives are misaligned, right? Because people react more if they feel stronger emotions. And it's actually also very helpful if you have people surrounding you who believe in similar things, right? It's just nice. And you don't want to disagree with everyone around you all the time because that's just frustrating. Comes back to a Kahneman, right? System one, system two. I mean, you don't want to go into system two and think about topics in heavy mental load. You just want to go into system one, believe in something and, and go ahead and have friends around you that believe the same shit. Yeah. <laughs> and that can go in every direction, right? You can be, you can be like, let's, let's take religion as like one of the most polarizing things there is. You can be like the one atheist in this like full small town of just like Mormons. And you wanna, you, you find people on the internet who are also atheists, like we can connect with, or you can be the one like believer in like some religion in like a, a town full of atheists. And then you find like other believers online and you surround yourself with them. So it, it goes in lots of different directions. And I don't even know whether there's anything practical you can take out of it. like immediately but i think it's something meet people in real life that's one thing yeah or <laughs> in the metaverse 
I don't know if that I don't know if that helps at all. But yeah, meeting people in real life is nice, but it doesn't apply to everyone, right? If you're just living in this like specifically young people, if you feel stuck in a specific village where no one is actually thinking the same way you do, and you find your own community online, that can be very empowering as well. But at the same time, I I agree, right? I think taking conversations off Twitter sometimes and actually having a long form conversation about a topic with other people might be very helpful to make it a, a healthier discourse. I think that's that's definitely part of it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, to throw one more buzzword in, right? I mean, critical thinking is what I think it's one of like the top 15 skills that are needed according to probably the World Economic Forum and others that I have at least read it somewhere. So it's something that you can teach early on by just talking to different people. And one dynamic that I have seen when I was in high school in the US was that this whole topic of debating is actually taught in school, which is not taught in school in most German schools, for example. You actually, by kind of sixth, seventh grade, you join debate courses where you fly across the United States or across your island, uh, your state, um, and you actually lead debates in different topics. And people have like contra and pro arguments and you basically argue against each other, whether you believe in these topics or not, but it helps you to kind of reinforce um, that there are different opinions and that different opinions have certain arguments to them, which are completely valuable. And there's a good discussion about it if it's based on facts and good reasoning. And I think sometimes I'm missing that because people actually are not learning that in school to have public debates, maybe against each other, but around a topic where basically both have the same foundation, which is kind of the question that needs to be answered in that debate forum. And I, I think that's a very smart idea. And even Barack Obama, I think, was one of the leading debaters, actually, in the Hawaiian state. And for good reason, he was... When, when I was in high school, I qualified for like a, a national debate championship. Like me, me too, actually, in Hawaii. So we... it, was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. Like, I love debating. Uh, but maybe that's the reason why we are here, Mike. Maybe that's the serendipity. Maybe we should we should set up some debates over, over here. But I, I think the you you probably went to like a good U.S. school then, because the U.S. school system is like very flawed in many different ways. And I don't think that everyone worries about learning to debate there because they need to worry about like learning anything. <laughs> yeah, learning math. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, good good point. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely better school. Um, yeah, it's different for public schools, private schools, and all that. So I agree. Um, not speaking for everybody. But yeah, I think we, we talked a lot. Do you have any content recommendation? I think we like we actually have lots of content recommendations for the day. I think like just read the <laughs> read the Sequoia, Founders All Hands, and then also it's gonna it's gonna keep you busy. Yeah, it, it will keep you busy. Like I think if you if you have anything to do with business in general, like trying to understand the macro system. Like, no one really understands what's going on, right? That's the fun thing about economics. Like, everyone has theories. Even the economists don't really know. They just propose things, and then they model things out and see how accurate they can get. But I think thinking about it and what it means for you is very helpful, no matter which position you're in. And then also, I just... I hope that we can, this time, guard the everyday citizens from the impact of the recession a bit more because that was hitting many people very, very hard in 2008 and 2009. Right. And I think every recession, like negative economic growth 
like many people that are anti-capitalistic always say that, well, growth is not everything. Well, like it definitely isn't, but negative economic growth impacts millions and millions of people very negatively psychologically, because sometimes they get fired, they, they can't provide for their families anymore. Like being unemployed is very, very straining on your mental health, especially if you have financial worries. And then also it leads to worse healthcare outcomes. It means that people are cutting back on the healthcare expenses and not going to like, they are very, like very, very, very many second order consequences and third order consequences from recessions that are impacting the health and well-being of people well more than just in quotation marks losing money so i i think that's often forgotten when people talk about it right it's a it's obviously like a headline well that hedge fund lost that much money or like stock portfolios are down but many people don't really have stock portfolios right specifically people in lower economic standing but it does impact them as well because if, if someone who is already affluent loses like 30% of their of the value that their stock portfolio is worth, that might impact them, but they still have 70% of the stock portfolio and they probably have a better way of like providing for themselves. But if you are, if, if the company or the whole economic system struggles and the company that other people work for who don't have that kind of luxury, if they have to like fire people or if something happens like the the mortgage bubble in 2008 and 2009 that impacts people very directly, then it gets very bad for the average citizen or like specifically lower classes very quickly. And I think that's for some reason, I don't know if I'm just not seeing it, but like often forgotten when people talk about it. So I'm, I'm, I hope that we have better guardrails and obviously I don't want tech and tech workers and founders and all of them to be like very negatively impacted. But I think we can, we can like recover from it, right? We have a better way of coping with it than people who don't have our flexibility when it comes to from where we work, how we work, what we're doing. Does it make sense? Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Um, that's a huge problem because at the end it affects different parts of the system again, as well, if also people in lower income areas actually don't spend the money on certain things. So it's going to impact the whole market industry again, right? It's top down and bottom up. So it, let's try to kind of influence it and everybody, you can vote, you can vote for whatever you want to vote for and uh, have an impact through that way. Or maybe you have an idea on how building a company can yeah, help. Just build some cool shit. Right. Societal problems. Yeah, I agree. Hey Mike, it's been good, 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 good chatting. Um, very, uh, very nice seeing you again. Um, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, definitely follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to it. And let us know if you're listening. Uh, we sometimes get messages on different platforms and it's always great to get in touch with listeners. So um, yeah, let us know. We love it. And yeah, hope everyone has a productive week and we'll hear each other very soon again.